time for part two of how does it feel to be a people and its subsequent question that is answered in the following program. Can man live forever and still prove that the backstage life is worth it all? Okay, that's enough of that for crying out loud. And uh, for those of you who uh, did not hear yesterday's program, I would suggest you depart quickly because I'm, I'm not going to give a very long and involved reintroduction to the subject. Uh, it uh, briefly is this, that it has, it has been my feeling for a long time that people rarely talk about anything important. And uh, I don't mean the news. To me, the news is of the, the most passing disinterest generally, although I listen to it incessantly. It does not necessarily mean that it's important. It's uh, a kind of uh, conning tower, to me, the news, a kind of periscope just to watch the comings and goings of my fellow ants. But uh, that does not necessarily mean that what they're doing and what seems to be important is, uh, <laughs> or what I'm doing is important. This is a very important thing that we all have to keep in mind, that, that almost all of our little scrabbling activities during the given day, during a given lifetime, are comparatively, certainly relatively unimportant in the overall picture of what man is, where he's been, what he's doing, what, what he's here for, what kind of creature he is, and that's a fascinating... You know, I think one of the things that we didn't bring up yesterday is the incessant insane urge of man to know what he is? Why does he have to know this? Uh, and what is there inside of us that makes us continually self-analytical, uh, which leads to philosophies, theologies, uh, all kinds of ologies of one kind or another, which are all devoted to figuring out what man is, where he's going, why he's here. Uh, it would be inconceivable for us to think of a squirrel uh, having a great squirrelology, uh, a, a squirrelistic point of view, which uh, is the parallel to the humanistic point of view. And he's looking for the betterment and the greater improvement and the evolutionary development of the squirrel in general, particularly in relationship to his social attitude towards his brother or fellow squirrel. Uh, we would think this is an incredible concept, and yet here we are, man, doing exactly that. Walking around, because let's face it, we're flesh and blood like the squirrel. Let's face it, we got eyeballs just about like the, uh, the giraffe. Uh, we walk around and uh, we've got feet just like elephant. And, and yet somehow we have evolved this, this uh, incredible structure of self-analysis. Self, uh, uh, holding ourselves up to a mirror constantly. Uh, it goes all, what, what do you think the Bible is? It's about good and evil of man. Uh, it's about what man is, really. All philosophies, great philosophies, whether they be uh, uh, Far Eastern, whether it be Confucian or Taoistic, whether it be uh, Hebrew, whether it doesn't make any difference. Whatever the philosophy is, it all develops into one thing. What, what is man? What is good? What is evil? Uh, what kind of creature is man? Where can he go? And they're almost all based on a theory of perfectibility. <laughs> In short, it, it, they're almost all based on the idea that man is imperfect. And that somewhere, because you know when you say the term imperfect, that implies a, a, a very interesting thing. That implies that there is something else. 
that somehow we can achieve that. Is that something else only in our own mind? That's a good question. And, and then, if, then to ask the next one, the most obvious next question, why is it in our mind? Why is it in our mind? Does the squirrel dream of a better squirrel that does not have to go grubbing for nuts in the winter? I doubt it. Why does man continually think of another kind of man? It's a curious question. Uh, he is saying something about himself when he says this. He says, I'm rotten. I am, I'm just rotten that, that there's a better model coming. <laughs> and, and what makes him think this? Well, I, I suspect we, one reason, we're the only creature that has any concept of past. In short, as we look back, we can say for certain that man was different at one time, and he was a caveman, we'll say. We know this. And we like to assume that he is better now. And so then the next obvious assumption is that he will be better some other time in the future. This is an inevitable conclusion that you come to. Uh, and yet, uh, the squirrel, going back to the squirrel, do you think for a minute that, that if a squirrel was able to look back a thousand years and see other squirrels still gathering nuts and doing exactly what he did and is doing, the squirrel would then become human, of course. The squirrel would then say, but there must be a better squirrel. This is ridiculous. Uh, man uh, alone among animals has a sense of the ridiculous. This is ridiculous. When am I going to start walking straight up instead of bent over with fur on my back? Uh, <laughs> this is, these are all questions which rarely are discussed. And incidentally, I will point this out immediately before we go any further. That if you do discuss these questions, you will always be called either a kook or fool, or you will be called immature. That's an interesting concept. That the more you get involved in the daily trivial aspects of life, the more mature you are considered. And so the more a guy can talk endlessly about taxes, the more he can talk endlessly about money, the more he can talk endlessly about building houses, the more mature he is considered. The more a man looks up at the stars and looks over at the horizon and says, what is it all about? What are we? The less mature he is considered. I submit that they're exactly the opposite. I submit that from the moment of birth, it is a continual traveling towards a kind of hiding under the daybed until finally a man reaches the final state of perfection. He's totally concealed under the daybed, and he really does begin to believe that his computation of the tax structure, his attitude towards the political beliefs of his day, uh, his considered uh, plan to put parking meters along Vine Street is a real example of true maturity in action. Well, uh, <laughs> I submit it's exactly the opposite. I say that it's all roughly related to kids playing with model airplane sets. I say it's all roughly related to kids playing with model railroad sets where they build the little towns. They make sure that they all stop at the right stations, one thing and another. Uh, of course, this, this is a very unpopular view. And speaking of unpopular views, we have the sales department here. Now, there again, now, now the reason that this show 
I uh, started yesterday, for those of you who might have heard it, uh, this is part two of this discussion. You recall that uh, we, we made the point, a uh, personal point here, that most generally the real news, the really important discussions of what man is about, uh, what uh, life is, where we're going, rarely ever appears in ordinary conversations, and if it does, it's immediately called boring. Uh, it rarely appears in newspapers, and if it does, it's only in very important papers, and papers that usually use this stuff on weekends alone uh, to fill up the boilerplate, to, to fill up the vast areas of space between the ads and one thing or another, and often is found on page 75, if you find it at all. Now, uh, it all boils down to one basic question. What do you think man is? Which way do you look at man? Uh, is he is he a uh, is he a creature of an infinite beauty? Is he a creature designed to fly higher and higher and higher with great enveloping wings? In short, he literally is God of all the universe. He is the greatest of all possible creations. Of course, it is quite obvious that he has not achieved his expectations. But he will. He will fly higher and higher until one day he will be the perfect animal. The assumption being that one day it will all stop and there will be this fantastic alabaster monument standing, towering above all the galaxies of all creation. Man, Aunt Mamie stands above it all. Humanus Uberalis. Well... Okay, there's that one concept. Now, that, that's a very strongly held one. Let me tell you, that, that runs through almost all theologies. It runs through almost all philosophies, novels, plays. Oh, man, it's a big thing. Uh, this basic ego of man knows no bounds. Now, uh, on the other hand, there is another expression which pops up from time to time. It is not new, although every time it's discovered, it is considered new. Uh, it was a, it was a, uh, a discovery, well, in fact, one of the most uh, recent discoveries of this was about the year 1100, when an unknown German monk sitting in a, in a quiet monastery got bugged by it all and wrote down a couple of essays relating to this subject. We will give you that as subsequent reading later on. He was the first existentialist of modern times. Uh, his philosophy keeps appearing and reappearing, disappearing and reappearing. Uh, most currently, uh, you'll find it in the, in the works of the absurdists. These are the people who feel that man is, a, is an incomprehending, random creature. And all of nature is a random thing that just was thrown by some vast, incomprehensible, random toss of some natural dice. And he can only but bay at the moon and make gibbering sounds. And believing, of course, that his gibbering sounds are perfectly oriented, beautifully thought out, reasoned, logical creations, pyramids of the mind, he goes on gibbering at the moon and baying at the sun. And the, the ape himself, swinging in the fields, gibbering, does not know he is gibbering. He feels that he is speaking well. He has considered this, and this is what he would like to say to his fellow ape. And so man is one with a vast random universe that is nonsensical, absurd, and just a thing of total chaos. I suggest you look up the word chaos in your dictionary. That is a definition of a kind of world 
that many people feel is and we are part of. Oh, and by the way, don't laugh at it. Uh, that there is much evidence to prove that they are just as right as the first one. Just as right as the first one. Now, that's a difficult thing to accept because you say, look at it, I've got all my towels piled up. That's not chaotic. I've got my bank account all balanced there. You see that? I've got the slip here. It shows you. Last Wednesday, I called Mr. Murphy down at the bank, and he sent me it's all straightened out. I've got it all ready here. Uh, man is often under the illusion that his is a very, very well-organized and a non-chaotic world. In fact, it even gets to the point where, where he buys cemetery lots it, well in advance. A guy 22 years old will go out and buy himself a cemetery lot. He figures he's really going to organize it all. And, uh, and he'll buy one that guarantees perpetual care. So he figures that, that now that's the ultimate in uh, organization. Well, uh, this is an, another kind of chaos. It, it really is another kind of chaotic behavior. Now, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, this, this, these two warring ideas about man have clashed continually. Uh, they have produced wars. They have produced uh, endless dialogues, decalogues, pentalogues. They have, they have, they have produced uh, fistfights in bars. Uh, and yet, no one really is able to, as yet, do or come to any even remote conclusion about it. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the problems that we have to face, of course, is, and this is by way of recap, uh, the problem that at any given time in history, people believe that they have arrived now at the age of enlightenment. This is one of the great... Is there such a thing as enlightenment, of course, is a question that is asked by some philosophers. But we all believe that we have arrived at that age. No age considers itself the dark age. And yet no age considers itself perfect. Every age rails against its time and yet admires its time. And so we of the 20th century believe that we are far superior to men of the 16th century. We do. And yet we write endless books on how terrible the 20th century is, a time of trial, a time of, a time of, in, uh, of uh, anxiety. Well, I submit that man was always anxious from the very first time he crawled out of the mud, that all times are times of anxiety just because we're alive. And uh, here, here is, the, uh, here is the, the great dichotomy. You hate your time and you love your time. Uh, you feel that this is the time of enlightenment. Everybody feels this about the 20th century. Uh, they felt that in the Dark Ages, you know. Guys were writing vellum volumes at the time of the enlightenment of their day. They did not consider it an unenlightened time. Now, here we, here we have arrived now in the 20th century. We have all kinds of uh, new and additional tools at our disposal. But has that changed anything? Uh, well, that's a question that has often arisen. Now, recently in Montreal, a scientist, a biological philosophical scientist, delivered a paper to a group of scientists about the fact that he believes that an entirely new science of discovering facts about man is necessary. He said, because most of our sciences, behavioral, uh, humanistic, one thing or another, uh, ignore great areas of what man is biologically. For example, uh, they ignore the fact that he's different in the morning than he is at night. They ignore the fact that, that, uh, that the moon and the sun and the stars all have an effect on man. And that's literally quite true. I, I know that very few psychology classes ever bring up the fact 
that a, that a person uh, the day after the full moon is different than a person at the day of the thin moon. They, they rarely bring this up because this is considered old superstition. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But uh, many biologists will contend that that's not true. It is not a superstition. Uh, that what does gravity do to you? What does, uh, what does the changing environment of, say, if you were living in the frozen north, what kind of a man are you? As opposed to a man who is growing, say, in the equatorial regions. You contend with an entirely different set of circumstances, constantly. Your body is different. And so he says the physiological processes de definitely govern every attitude, everything that we do in any given moment of the day. And yet, this is hardly ever discussed. Really isn't. And so we like to think that a man who lives in the equator is really the same as anybody else, anywhere else. And that what he needs is a little enlightenment. Uh, we feel also that the man who lives up in the frozen north is like everybody else. And what he needs is education. And then he'll become like us here in the, in the temperate zones. Is that true? <laughs> uh, well, uh, a lot of things here. Now, he goes on to say this. And before we go into this, how about time for a couple of quickies here? The man's name is uh, Dubose, René Dubose, and he's from the Rockefeller Institute in New York and is a famous biologist and a very famous uh, philosopher in, in uh, science. And he goes on to say, and uh, this is, uh, again, a continuation of the article we were reading from the New York Times yesterday. He says, the orthodox approach, in other words, the orthodox study of man in the psychological sciences and the biological sciences, which say that man is really just a complex but ordinary machine, uh, just like the, the, the snail or the grasshopper is. He says the orthodox approach is not suitable for the study of these phenomena, meaning that man is different in the morning than he is at night, that he's different in full moon than he is in, in half moon and so on. He said because the phenomena themselves tend to vanish. Hear that? The phenomena themselves tend to vanish when dissected into lifeless component parts. What he means is if you, if you study astronomy, uh, it tends to become just an abstract science. It tends to become lifeless component parts unrelated to Charlie at 10 o'clock in the morning feeling a fantastic urge for a coffee break. He said these, these things must be brought together into a, some kind of a unified whole. Now listen to this. This is where we really get into some interesting stuff. Similarly, Professor DuBose said, man maintains an inherited physiological relationship to his primitive ancestors. And listen to his quote. Even when man has become an embrane city dweller, the Paleolithic bull, which survives in the inner self, still paws the earth whenever a threatening gesture is made on the social scene. Now, he's saying that that fight that breaks out in the bar is a threatening gesture on the social scene, and man becomes the Paleolithic bull without any control over it at all. Now, he may be a Paleolithic bull that chooses to run. He may be a Paleolithic bull that chooses to fight. But he is a Paleolithic bull, and there he is. This is the case, he explained, even though the original advantage that such defense mechanisms bestowed, in other words, to be a Paleolithic bull, was very important in an age of saber-toothed tigers. 
He said that even though the original advantage that such defense mechanisms bestowed on early man seldom has the same value today, but it remains. That is his point. Uh, in the same connection, Professor DuBose spoke of the important role that occult biological processes have always played in human life. He noted that Socrates described these processes as, quote, divine madnesses. <laughs> Think about that. Divine madnesses. Referring, he said, not to insanity, remember that, but rather to those deep biological attributes of man's nature which are almost beyond the control of reason and transcend its power. Where do you think wars come from? He says from deep biological urges which transcend reason. Have you noticed that people constantly writing books and they say and they, they, they like to pretend that if you brought cold light of reason into things that there would be no wars? No, he's saying that there's something far more powerful than that at work. And it's not psychological sickness either. He's talking about a biological thing. I must stress that word, biology. And then he goes on to say, creativity depends in part, creativity depends in part, on the ability to hear, quote, the voice of the deep and to tap resources from regions of man's nature which have not yet been explored. Now, that's a, <laughs> that's a fascinating statement there. And we're just going to leave that one lay out there. Studies that a more humanistic biology might pursue, now he's suggesting some things here, Professor DuBose indicated, would be the question of how the expression of ancient needs and urges are modified, how human physiology functions according to various cyclic patterns. That means the moon and the sun, the various uh, autumnal, winter, uh, summer solstices and one thing and another, and how man can shut out some stimuli to which he is exposed. In other words, what can we do about preventing this? As well as modifying others. In other words, bringing some up more, perhaps, or toning them down, and using their effects for his own ends. That's a fascinating series of studies, isn't it? <laughs> that opens up a can of peas. Uh, that, that, that's going to throw out a lot of stuff in school. I mean, you know. Uh, I think it's time for another commercial, don't you? Now, he's not through with this guy. Now, I might, I might say, uh, as, a, as a, well, I, I, I'll, I'll keep a personal comment until <laughs> after I read more of this. Because I have a, a real, I have a personal uh, footnote that I, I feel that I, I'd like to add to this man's discussions here, his, uh, his uh, solemnizing. You know, I'd like to say this, that we have great, uh, we have uh, our, our, whatever it is in our mind, we have great uh, fear of edifices. Uh, we, really, we really are impressed or imposed uh, upon often. We feel great senses of security when we're in the presence of the august. Now, by the august, I mean people who have accrued enough things after their name. Or this is not necessarily uh, worth anything. Remember that. Don't 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 always say, "Well, gee, that guy's got a degree in this. This guy's got a degree in that." Are you aware that at the time of the Renaissance, 
that there were thousands, literally, well, at that time it would be the equivalent of millions, but there were thousands of educated men who were walking the streets in Renaissance uh, cities in Europe whose educations were absolute pap by our standards. Uh, alchemists abounded, and, they, and that was a fantastic study, you know. Uh, there were there were all cultists. There were there were doctors of witchcraft, believe it or not, who were teaching at major universities in in the at the time of the beginning of the Renaissance. Really, what the Renaissance meant <laughs> was uh, was cleaning up a lot of the stuff that had accrued. Now, uh, I, I must must point out that those men were highly honored and respected in their time. They were not looked upon as fools, knaves, and idiots. We do now, sure. So be careful. Uh, we may be we may be looking at the wrong gods ourselves. Uh, we may be applauding the wrong degrees. We may be applauding the wrong uh, witchcraft that we have accrued of our time. But the professor goes on to say, he says, there are now more urgent reasons for biology to take a humanistic turn than merely to, quote, study the raw materials of man's nature. He says that there's a real reason for doing this. Although he made it clear that he is not discussing psychology, Professor DuBose noted that man now possesses, listen to this, the technical means... Now, he's talking about tools. He's not talking about psychological analysis. He now possesses the technical means for manipulating his mental and physiological processes and might soon develop ways to alter his inheritance and therefore direct the course of his evolutionary fate. Now, that means that we know something about our machine. In other words, we can cut out sections of the brain. We can... We can, uh, we can change glandular setups. We can, we can alter the molecular structure of hormones until we produce maybe a nine-foot man. Or maybe we produce a man that uh, has somehow been changed in such a, a vast way that he no longer has the same uh, biological things that his primitive ancestors had. Now, <laughs> that is something that none of us can comprehend because we all have them. Even though we like to think, you know, when they do create a better man, it's going to be like, more like me. Uh, forget it. This is, a, this is a great illusion. And one of the snares and the traps, this man would be a different man. He says, we have the tools at hand where we can practically do it. He says, this means that mankind may soon be faced, listen to this, with decisions of immense, fantastic importance that must be made in the light of, quote, proper kind of biological knowledge, he said, because somebody's going to start doing it. He said, we're going to start playing around with this, and we better know what we're doing. So we better be very, very careful about this new, these new tools which we have created, because it could, could result in some incredible thing, totally beyond the comprehension of any of us. You know, none of this stuff ever, ever enters into science fiction, for example. They always have science fiction. The man of science fiction is usually a man just like me and you a thousand years from now. He has the same thought processes. He has all kinds of different equipment, one thing and another. But he's always the same man. They never describe the man of the, of the uh, let's say, the 78th century as being 16 feet tall. Now, that would be a science fiction story. Not only is he 16 feet tall... But he's as different from you and me as, let's say, you are from the ape. You couldn't write a story about this. The reason you couldn't write a story about this is because we would have no involvement with him. 
have no connection with him. Because we are the ape. And, and we would only be looking at this new creature. It would be like writing a story about, uh, about a, a giraffe. Because he's really talking about creating a new man, not an improved man. It's a very different breed of cat, uh, <laughs> if I may use a terrible pun. A uh, very different breed of cat. And he says that, that uh, he goes on, and his last statement is this. And before we get to the last statement, how about a couple of quick uh, mundane statements from the salesman? The professor goes on to say, he says, the glory of the coming age must be... Con you notice he uses the word glory? So it makes me wonder right there. The glory of the coming age must be conceived within the framework of man's nature, of his biological limitations, as well as his potentialities. You see, that's something that very few guys ever take into account is the biological limitations. We like to think of the biological potentialities. Uh, we like to go out and run around constantly and say, well, man has not achieved his potentialities. Well, uh, what are his limitations? They are real, you know. Uh, they are not myth. They are not created by uh, evil people. They're definitely real. Now, I would like to submit something here now. For, for This is my own personal, <laughs> my own personal very questionable theories that this entire article represents a reappearance of another myth. And that myth is, and I'm talking about the professor himself, that we have now achieved, we now have at hand, the tools to create a better man. This myth has persisted for thousands of years, and the tools always take different forms, and the idea of creating a better man always takes different forms too. Now, I'll give you an example of that, that in the days prior to the advent of Christianity even, that at the time when the first concept of organized warfare began to appear, it appeared in the guise of good, that the people who organized warfare at the time said, now at long last we have the tools by which we can change man. We'll get rid of the bad ones. And uh, we will change man, we will bring the good to these others, and then all of us will go on and on and on. This is what many wars were fought for and about back in the earliest days of warfare. They called them the ideological wars. Uh, and then, then uh, along came uh, the great religions. These also were considered tools to create a better man, that at long last the tools are here right within our hands to create a new kind of man, have no relationship to the early primitive man. And, of course, these things we're talking were vast epochs. 
Now we are living in the age when we believe that science can create a new man, that we now at long last have the tools at our hand that will create this new person, will create this new creature. Now, is he right? Were they right? I don't know. <laughs> uh, is this part of the myth, Professor DuBose? Is he part of the myth that he himself is talking about? The myth that man is perfectible? That, that, uh, that man is a creature which can become this fantastic, beautiful, over-all-inclusive, uh, great thing? Is he part of that myth? When he fe and have you noticed that everybody who comes along with the idea that man can be radically changed and must be radically changed always recommends his own field as the medium by which the change will occur. That if you're a theologian, it's theology which will change it. If you're a general, you feel that, that war will change man for good. If you're a physicist, you feel that atomic science now will at last do it. That a few years ago, you know, the, the atomic physicists felt that a new kind of man would emerge now that they had discovered how to tap atomic energy. That man would now be able to be this fantastic great creature, which he always had the potentials, we believe, to be. And it will come through atomic science. Many guys believe it to this day. The novelist feels that man will become a great creature through literature. That if he creates better literature, he will be a greater creature. Uh, the, of course, the biologist here now, he says that man will become a greater creature through biology. That if he cuts out the right glands and if he operates with the right hormones, if he understands the right uh, problems that have to do with the, 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 the force relationships between man and the moon and the sun, that he will become a greater creature. Well, who's right? Or are they all partly right? Or are they all totally wrong? Uh, there are those atomic and physical and biological philosophers who have said that instead of being an upward course that man has pursued from the cave, it has been a downward course. Depends on how you define up or down. That we kill far more people today in wars than they ever did, than they ever even thought of doing. In fact, they tried to protect one another because they felt that the more of them there were, the, the less chance that the saber-toothed tiger had, which was literally quite true. Uh, today we've gone the other direction. Maybe, maybe that's part of evolution, to get rid of some of the people, some of the weeds. Uh, speaking of weeds, commercial time here. Now, now I, I'm, I'm quite sure that this type of program, of course, is never, <laughs> is never going to compete with rock and roll. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I find, I find that, that, uh, that when you walk around and you look up at the sun and you, you just live, you know, you, you, you can't help but have these, these vague feelings of what is it all about. Just once in a while you have them. What the devil is it, you know? Uh, what, what makes us write music and what makes us write poetry? What makes us sit and admire the sun? Do you, you know, you know, we talk about admiring nature. That's an interesting thought in itself. Admiring nature. It's as though we're admiring something outside of ourselves. We're looking at nature. It's something you look at through the scenic windows of a plane or a train or a car. Admiring nature. Do you think for any moment that a turtle 
is lying there and he admires nature? Uh, well, <laughs> I think one of our one of the things that lets us be what we are is the is the vague feeling that we have. Vague. It's very strong, actually. The strong feeling that we created ourselves. Man really believes that he did it. You know that that uh, that. Nature had nothing to do with the fact that we have jets. Nature had nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that we have trains and cars and planes and, and uh, we walk around in shoes. Man did it himself, totally, completely, and without any help. And so naturally, he looks at... And by the way, he looks at nature as some kind of wonderful, friendly, inferior thing. Because we really do feel superior to nature... Let's face it, that nature is a thing we can change or modify. We can destroy it if we want. Can we? Even if we level all the hills, all the trees and all the birds, is that nature? Or is that just the little part that we can see? We can destroy. Have we destroyed nature? Because, you see, we are nature. And, and uh, if the ant comes and eats down the trees, is, is, is the ant destroying nature? We consider him part of nature. We look out and it's a part of the natural world around us, the, na the nature. Well, uh, uh, maybe it's nature destroying nature. Maybe it's nature changing nature. We're nature, you know. We're part of the whole scene. But now, here is this piece in the paper here. Now, I'm reading this back on page 62 of the New York Times. And up on the front page, they have all the stuff about the tax and they have all the stuff about the new school bill and about whether de Gaulle is making a statement today or not, and so forth. And right next to that is one little, a real bomb, a genuine bomb next to that that goes even beyond the other one. And it's, it, it's a very misleading and a, a kind of subtle, sneaky little headline. And I read it and I said, for crying out loud, listen to this one now. The teaching of math is held misleading. Philosophical expert says, now again, everybody says, oh yeah, I know, they've got a new way to teach math. That's not what he's talking about. Expert says applicability to real world is completely missing. In short, those, those, those giant computers, he says, are not computing anything. They're computing a whole lot of hogwash. He says it's all, it's all in our mind. He says this, all this stuff, this, this great crossword puzzle of mathematics and so on, is about as complex and real as crossword puzzles about as complex and real, and he goes out to make some wildly fascinating points. He's, uh, and I'm not even going to touch that. He says, we make great emphasis on uh, elegance of proof. He says, very important to man, elegance of proof, rather than for clarity. That means actual meaning, what he means in this sense. And we, he sought to prove the existence of certain results, he says, man, without specifying how to find those results in any ordinary present-day world situation. In short, he says it's a great big puzzle game, mathematics largely today. And he said that we're getting further and further away from that. And he says in one day it will disappear and become an esoteric study like crocheting and needlework, and the machines will move ahead. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, we're on the edge of a really interesting world, all of us are. And we are on the edge of it. We won't see it, much of us. Uh, we, we definitely are primitive man. Now, we assume that primitive man means bad man. That's another assumption. We often assume that primitive man means evil man. Well, be careful what those philosophers often said.
They say that maybe primitive man was good man, and we're evil man. Maybe the man to follow us will know evil far beyond and above anything that we could ever comprehend. Incredible evil. And a total abstraction in killing, where we will kill the entire population of Venus, never having seen a Venusian, never even knowing what a Venusian is like. We are capable of this in the future, he says. <laughs> These are things to be considered, friends, as we move forward, ever upward and onward. Speaking of ever upward and onward, there still is a chance. And, of course, then there's another school of philosophy that holds is killing evil. Oh, boy. You can go on and on and on and on and on. And these subjects of discussion, of course, in relating, and, and again, I must say, in, in relationship to the real world that we all live in, are pure mental exercises. And yet they're really not. That it is a fact that the philosophers of whatever generation they are have far more affected the world to come and the world that would be than any guy who's passing a tax structure, than any guy who is uh, going to do something about civil rights someplace, than any guy, and, and these are all necessary people, I'm not putting any of these things down, but let me tell you this, one bearded angry man sitting in a hovel somewhere writing Das Kapital can have a fantastic, unbelievable reaction on the world that could go on for a million years. One guy sitting in his, in his little office in Vienna trying to figure out why people had a tendency to become hysterical on certain days of the month, and if his name was Dr. Sigmund Freud, could cause repercussions that would go on and on and on. One strange little guy with a, with a fantastic case of stomach trouble, real bad stomach problems, a boat moving through the South Pacific, providing his name was Charles Darwin, could cause <laughs> incredible changes in all the history and all the world to come. And I might point out, too, that it goes much before that. One guy sitting on a rock somewhere with a tin hat on his head who decided to organize other guys with tin hats on their heads, with associated banners and badges, to march off to change the civilization of another world beyond the, beyond the edge of the mountains, the Crusaders, they themselves have had untold repercussions forever. Never possible. Confucius sitting down and writing little things. <laughs> and you never know. You never know. And they're rarely reported on the front page, friends. Whoever is going to change that world of 2748 is probably hard at work now. They're probably calling him a nut. He can get no grants from anywhere. And he usually doesn't need grants. He's just sitting there with a piece of pencil on a paper. You know, Einstein never got any grants to speak of. He didn't have, even have a typewriter. Are you aware of that? That's right. E is equal to MC squared. He worked out on a ruled piece of notebook with a worn pencil one day. And that's all he needed, man. And that led to a lot of can of peas being opened. <laughs>